0: What's up? What's up? What's up? You are listening to Cheers to Beers, the podcast that lasts as long as the pint. I'm your host Jess, and today we have got a space episode. Yeah, that's right. Who doesn't love space? No one. It's freaking awesome. You know, it's even more awesome than just like loving space in general. It's talking to real life scientists, actual astronomers from the University of Washington who know their shit. So. Listen, I'm so excited about this episode. (laughs) This is straight up the most informational podcast episode I've ever done. And uh, we just talk about space. It's great. So here's the thing about this podcast. This is how it works. Um, I, I grab a friend or an industry person, a beer lover, anyone who is down to drink and talk about beer. And that's exactly what we do. My guest chooses the beer. We drink it and we talk about it. Um, so in this episode, I am joined, like I said, by some astronomers, no big deal. They're just some homies of mine. Like it's cool. Um, Jake Lustig Yeager, who has been a former guest, um, and Dave Fleming, also a former guest. If you listened to the episode right before this one, the light Beard challenge, um, I recorded with those dudes as well. It was the episode we actually recorded before this one, like we all in the same day, um, Light Bear Challenge is kind of our warm-up to talk about science. Um, so you may hear us reference that. Um, and if you haven't listened to that episode, uh, I highly recommend it. It's a really fun one. You may have remembered a few weeks ago, NASA, heard of them? Released uh, this amazing find that these Belgian astronomers had been working on. Uh, a new star, well, it's not a new star, but new to common knowledge called Trappist-1 which has seven planets rotating it three which are within the habitable zone similar to Earth. So, yeah, Earth-like planets out there. Pretty tight, right? These dudes literally study that shit. And while they did not directly work on like this whole release of everything. Now, obviously, like this is a huge news story and like just big for society for humanity in general. Um, so there's definitely like you know, uh, work on stuff related to it. This is a lot of science talk. I know you're probably thinking, I thought this was a beer podcast, and you are correct. Here's what's dope: these Belgian astronomers are homies, and they're like, "Duh, we got to name this star Trappist." Obviously, Jake actually goes into the whole story about how that name came about, which is great. So I figured, why why not drink a Trappist beer? It only makes sense. So. Today we are drinking the West Small triple legendary Belgian beer. If you don't have a bottle shop close to you, I am sorry because if you do, like you need to go get it right now. I know it's definitely the pricey side and it seems like, I don't know, a special occasion you would drink this, but but come on you guys, we found some planets that are earth-like. Dude, aliens, they're real. That's all I'm saying. So let's drink about it, right? that's basically what this episode is. So yeah, please join along. Um, If you can't get your hands on a, you know, a Trappist beer, just casually, uh, grab anything that's kind of Belgian um, or any beer, really. And, you know, drink with us and learn about space and science and planets and stars. It's all very exciting, you guys. Um, I do want to remind people that while i very much enjoy rambling into a microphone about beer i am no beer expert i am merely someone who just loves to drink it and likes to talk to people about it so um i kind of try to go into some trappist beer history and like just trappist in general um i did some very light google searching this was (laughs) by no means like am i saying that i actually know all this shit? this is just basic info that i have gleaned off the world wide web I also keep pronouncing Westmall as Vessmall. Like, I don't know if that's like some weird affectation that's like, I'm trying to kind of sound like I'm pronouncing something correctly, but like still going to hold on to some, you know, American whiteness while I do it. So uh, yeah, I have no idea if you're supposed to pronounce Westmall as Vessmall, but I decided to do it anyways. Okay. If you have uh, listened to the rambling so far, please enjoy this episode about... Uh, planets and stars with my friends and astronomers and so in this episode we talk about what exactly we think a trappist beer is the potential for alien beer and everything you need to know about the star trappist one grab a beer and join us let's talk about beer and space cheers let's just let's just do an intro again um Jake, how about you say your name and I'm going to go all like T.A. icebreaker on you. Um, and your favorite type of sandwich.
1: Oh, wow. Uh, so my name's is Jake. Um, I'm an astronomer here at UW. We're in my office right now. Um, my favorite type of sandwich, I'm, uh, banh mi immediately comes to mind because I love uh, Vietnamese food. Oh, yeah. And so I'm just going to
2: go with that.
0: All right. Great. Dave.
2: Uh, hi, I'm Dave. I'm also an astronomer at UW, a colleague of Jake's in Jake's office, live. And uh, my favorite type of sandwich is something with guac and cheese on it.
0: Guac? Mm-hmm. Oh. Interesting. Damn.
1: Oh, I'd put you guac
2: up, on Jake. my banh mi, though. Oh, shit, but sure But if you it's do. Chipotle, they're charging <laughs>
1: me like a dollar $1.50 more.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I recently, while working at brunch, I had a woman who ordered her eggs benedict california style which was like as a californian i understand what that means but she just thought that she could go into any restaurant and order something california style and like assume that there was going to be like avocado and pico de gallo like that's kind <laughs> of a bold move to just go into a brunch spot and say Pretty bold california style <laughs> yeah
1: what if they don't have fresh avocados right, exactly. they're, gonna be like, <laughs> they're Sorry. like we got something green that i can put on here <laughs> <laughs> or they'll just say
0: no um. All right, so I I have gathered these astronomers here today because we are doing a little astro slash Belgian style episode today. Um. Basically, I wanted to get Jake and Dave on the mics to talk about the seven new exoplanets that were discovered. Is Exoplanets the right term? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Um. That there was a, a press release, I guess that NASA. When was that, like a week or two ago? Two weeks?
1: About a week and a half, maybe? Mm-hmm. Yeah, about um, then.
0: Talking about these potentially Earth-like planets, and um, I'm going to let them get into it, but to bring this all together with beer is uh, the star that they're all orbiting is TRAPPIST-1, so it only made sense to drink a TRAPPIST beer while we talk about <laughs> space. Um, so I think... To start things off, I'm just going to introduce the beer we are drinking. If you are a beer lover, you are most likely familiar with the Vestmal Trappist Ale Triple. It is a classic, uh, world-renowned beer, very highly rated. And basically the beer that came up with the style of a triple, now you can go around all sorts of places and especially here in the Pacific Northwest and find triple style. It was really originated from this Belgian brewery small. So um, this is what we're going to be popping open today. We're going to be drinking this. We're going to be talking about this along with space. So I'm pretty excited.
2: And here comes the beer opening. It was a success.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So before we take a sip and get into this, let's uh, talk a little bit about the visuals and the aromas. This is a nice golden yellow. Slight haze to it. Definitely. uh, a nice fluffy white head. I would say. What do you guys think?
1: Yeah, definitely it's definitely a, It true. appears to be unfiltered. There's definitely sure. some particulates floating about. Yep. Not not large particulates, but um, you know.
2: Yeah. Staying too true to its triple nature, definitely. It's a gorgeous color.
0: Oh man, and the smell. It's so good. So much better than the light beers you were drinking before. <laughs> Oh, man, it's fruity, it's aromatic, slightly floral. Get some of that yeast and the malt and the aroma as well. Mm. Oh, just from the smell, you can tell it's going to be a complex beer.
2: Better than a quarter's light, most likely.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Let's <laughs> good, just go ahead and assume that. <laughs> okay, you guys ready to cheers? Let's
2: cheers. It's a damn good beer. Hmm, wow.
0: Oh my god, it's so good! I haven't had That's one of these in a while. Jeez, oh, man.
1: for what is This is nine percent.
0: I think it's about nine percent somewhere
1: flavorful. in there. It's Yeah, it's very impressive. I love uh, strong alcoholic Belgian beers. B- it, they just are totally different from strong alcoholic IPAs. Definitely, um, and, and I mean I love it all, but but it's it's uniquely drinkable for being so damn Definitely. alcoholic mm-hmm. and
0: that's something that a lot of beer critics and beer writers will say is that uh, what makes this beer so good is that it hides that alcohol level to the point where it is very drinkable and then you're like finish your drink and you're like oh fuck i just drank a nine percent beer in five minutes not really that's really fast to drink this, but um
1: <laughs> it's been done and it, it could <laughs> right. easily happen yeah
0: um man it's just it's got a lot going on it's fruity but so light it still has got some hop uh that spice european sauce hops i'm just gonna assume it's saws, um just that spiciness and then the fruitiness and the drinkability just ah uh, this is a world-class beer
2: i love how its flavor you know comes in waves like there's the initial mm. like fruitiness and then it hits you with the hops at the end like the hops finish like mm. it's a very uh, you know complex drink each time it's kind of like the con- a lot of
1: this. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like the continued detection of planets around the TRAPPIST-1 Oh <laughs> <system>. nice. <laughs> Which nice is still relation. It still hits you. It's, it's still hidden. occurring as
2: we speak. Is
0: it really?
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. It literally today in these offices, but we'll get there. We'll okay. get there.
0: Okay. Okay. So, before we get too much into science and uh, astronomy, um I think we should talk a little bit about what this beer is about what a trappist beer is and you know how that relates to the trappist star that these exoplanets orbit. Um, for those of you who don't know this mall is a brewery, uh, a trappist brewery in mall, Belgium. Trappist, uh, in case you guys don't know, um, is a, a certain type of Roman Catholic monk establishment, like an abbey. Um, their whole thing is that they follow the, the rules of St. Benedict about his rules about living in an abbey. And uh, one of the main things that has resulted in Trappist goods of sorts is because, according to St. Benedict, you must be producing something. So he valued work and those monks that live in a Trappist <laughs> abbey had to make something to, um, you know, supply an income for for the Abbey and also for the public. So this could range from cheese, um, really great cheeses that come out of Belgium Abbey, Belgian Abbey's, um, butter. If you guys haven't had Belgian butter before, it's amazing. Um, and lucky to us, beer is another commodified... Uh,
1: is it just me or do the,
0: bon- do the
1: monks know, like, what's up?
0: <laughs> oh, no, they, they absolutely know what's up. I mean, if... Go ahead, listeners. Go back to episode two. um we when we do the Saint. Bernardist app twelve, he talks a lot about um, this kind of style and lifestyle. But think about think about being a monk. and you are celibate, and you just read the Bible all day, like Pass. they have to turn up somehow. <laughs> like something <laughs> has to happen. So of course, they know what's up. And because they're monks and very focused workers, they can produce, amazing beer like this um so that's what trappist is and is directly related to belgian beer history um this beer this triple in particular has been brewed since 1934 and is really when the style of a triple kind of became i mean the style was always made before but it was the first time it was labeled Something interesting that I learned um, about because the <laughs> the concept of a triple, I mean, have you guys ever seen that like on on a list at a beer or like in the grocery store, like the style of a triple?
2: Mm-hmm. Only in Seattle, though.
0: Okay, sure. Um, what I've had people ask me before, what does a triple mean? And it's funny because it's kind of ambiguous. And uh, there's a few things that can be answered. One that it's used about the triple amount of malt that you would normally, which is obviously going to result in fermenting of sugar and um, the barley or whatever, and to become higher alcoholic. But one interesting thing that I found in some light research that I did is um, the concept of when they were making the beer back in the day at the Abbey, that they would put uh, X's on which barrels were which type of beer which generally related to the gravity of it so like one x would be three percent beer two x's would be a six percent beer and three x's would be nine percent which is what we're drinking here so who really knows that if you do know uh, t- at me on Twitter, just, just DVD, like, I don't know. someone tell me the actual answer to this, but for, <laughs> from the research that I've done, it seems like there's no true answer in what a triple exactly is, except for the fact that Vesmal put out this beer in 1934, labeled it as the triple, and now it's kind of become a style of beer. So that was a kind of a long winded, <laughs> Explanation from me. <laughs> so I have a question. Now. Sure. Yeah.
1: So wait, are all Trappist ales triples? No. No. Okay. So Trappist can be single, double, triples, sure. or is that? Yeah. Okay.
0: And it's not necessarily single, double, triple, although double stylized as D U B B E L right is a style which would come from that history I was talking about before. But um, exactly. Trappist just means it's made, it's brewed in a Trappist abbey. Okay.
2: Basically. The monks. Yes. Depends on how fucked up they want to be. <laughs> <laughs> hey,
0: totally. Yeah, probably
1: pretty <laughs> fucked up considering how little Some sex they're they having. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Approximately zero.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, Trappist can be applied to any of the other goods. Trappist, you know, beer cheese or um, butter, you know, whatever, whatever the situation is. Um, I think a, tr- a triple could also be labeled as a golden strong pale ale. Um, strong pale ale might be a good general way to describe this taste. I mean, it's far more complex than a normal triple no, I mean, I guess more far more complex than a normal triple, but far more complex than a uh, pale ale. Approximately you know? three times more complex. I, I think that's <laughs> an accurate <laughs> assumption. Um, so, there's kind of a history of the, the Trappist style beer, and also another fun fact about Vestmál is that... Um, Uh, it is the only certified Trappist brewery that is considered secular. So I'm not Mm, sure when the transition happened or how that happened, because apparently it's not monks making it because it's not Roman Catholic associated, but it's still considered a Trappist. I mean, again, like I said, I did light research. I didn't go too far into this, but I think that is interesting that they are still considered a, a Trappist brewery when they're not, actually roman catholic monks following saint benedict um but apparently it's really hard to be labeled as there's like this little icon
1: that's a one two Uh, six sides what's this six sided shape? hexagon is that a
0: hexagon yeah okay this hexagon label here (laughs) that says authentic trappist product is uh very hard to get apparently so when you see that thing that's how you know it's legit um so
2: they not atheist monks <laughs> brewing that.
0: i truly don't know what the brewing situation is over there but it's a damn good beer yeah like sorry that was kind of long-winded and me going to the history of that but i just wanted to make sure you guys were on the same page about you know what this beer is about
1: i'm into it and i appreciate the historical <laughs> context here because i really had no idea um
0: yeah fuck this beer is good
1: yeah it's really good
0: it's delicious Man, I just I can't get over how many flavor profiles are in here. It's spicy. It's floral. It's hoppy. It's smooth. It's malty. Fuck. That's true. Okay, so I think that this might be a good, um, a good uh, segue into talking about how this is related to um, these new exoplanets. And sure, I told Jake a little while ago that I purposely did not read anything about these because i wanted to hear it from you guys for the first time so i can have some sort of element of surprise and excitement
1: sure thing well okay so i think like the first place to get started is like the star is called trappist one and like where do stars get their names and why is it called trappist one because that sort of dictates this whole connection here and what does it have to do with the beer and those are very (laughs) tenuous overlaps but um but we'll indulge them uh, to their fullest. So, the Trappist one star is a relatively nearby star. It we can't see it with our eyes, but because it's really, really faint, and we'll get into that and the implications for the planets in a little bit. But it um, it is you know one of the somewhat nearby stars. There's a lot of nearby stars, but there's a lot more further away stars. And basically, stars get their names by the telescopes that discover them. And so there's a telescope called Trappist Ah. and it's relatively new. And people who study stars, astronomers who study stars for the stars that they are, uh, rather than me and Dave who study stars for the planets that orbit them because we're planet junkies. Um, (laughs) they would say, well, what the fuck? We already noticed this star and gave it a name. We called it two mass, J23062928-0502285. Really rolls off the tongue. <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh, man. <laughs> so, <laughs> so those were like astrobiologists or some other? Astronomers. Sort of? Astronomers. Okay. okay. Who,
1: who basically two mass, right? Like, okay, telescope names. Two mass was a survey that looked at stars and it it, it, it classified all these nearby and stars in the galaxy um, of which there are millions and they gave them names and when you name millions of things you have to have some sort of numerical convention um right so
0: wait so (laughs) they were pissed that they came up with a super scientific name and then someone else named it something better
1: it was more that just like there is And we don't need to get too much into this, but there's a habit of exoplanet scientists renaming stars. They're like, oh, we found planets around the star and we're going to rename the star. And people who study stars are like, fuck you guys. We already have like a rich literature on this star. Or like it was included in a paper that talked about, you know, 100,000 stars in one. So I think it's OK to rename it because it never had any individual interest before. It was just one of many. And now it's trappist 1. It's the first star in the Trappist telescope system to find planet without they found planets around. There's a and very so rich
2: history in astronomy to rename shit <laughs> for arbitrary reasons. <laughs> okay, sure. Be it galaxies or exoplanets or stars hosting exoplanets or comets or literally whatever, just renaming things for the sake of planting your own flag. Sure.
1: And speaking of naming things, in astronomy, astronomers love acronyms, and that's where Trappist, <laughs> TRAPPIST comes in. So oh. Trappist is an acronym, and it stands for the Transiting Planets and Planetesimals Small Telescope. Definitely <laughs> not contrived. <laughs> Trappist.
0: Whatsoever. And so From this Belgian astronomers.
1: Right. So Belgian astronomers put this together. So. In astronomy, it's very classic to backronym things. So that's where you come up with the word you want, and then you figure (laughs) out what words give you the acronym that you want.
2: We're both guilty of this, by the way. Yeah, me
1: and Dave do this all the time. (laughs) It's fantastic. Um, Yeah, so we fit into that uh, astronomy situation. And so it consists of, like, two telescopes. Uh, One is in Morocco, and one is in, um, I believe, Chile. And so we're talking about Belgians collaborating with Moroccans and sure, Chileans yeah. to build these telescopes. And so this they is a global collaboration of, of nations that are interested yeah. in science and astronomy to look for planets that orbit other stars, exoplanets. And so it's really awesome for a lot of different yeah. reasons. And yeah. that's the tie-in to TRAPPIST. And so what they're actually looking for with these telescopes is planets that pass in front of their, the stars that they orbit or transit them. And when they do so, they block a little bit of that light from the star. And if we watch very, very, very carefully as these planets pass in front of the star in their orbits and go around the back of the star and then come back and pass in front again, we can, if we're careful and we get very, very good data, we can monitor the star's light and see that little drop in light because the planet physically blocks the light from the star. It's not that planets are intrinsically bright. It's that stars are bright and and the planets block the light. And so planets are super duper faint. Like an earth-like planet around a sun-like star is like 10 billion times fainter as an astronomical object. And so since in astronomy, all we have to work with is light, we need to look look for photons of light with telescopes. We have a difficult time finding exoplanets, which explains why it's such a new field. And so... Um, this is how this system was discovered with these Trappist telescopes um, commissioned and operated by the Belgians. And, um, and so they were looking for these transiting planets. And the first system that they found um, back in early 2016 was announced to have definitely two planets and then possibly a third planet. Uh, so um, those were planets Trappist-1b, Trappist-1c, and trappist one d and so that was when the system looked like it had three transiting planets and so i don't know dave do you want to talk about how (laughs) trappist d turned into more planets (laughs) yeah
2: so the interesting thing about trappist d was that trappist d resided in what appeared to be the habitable zone and the habitable zone loosely defined is the region around a star where a planet receives enough energy from the star uh, such that if any water existed on the planet, it was in liquid form. Because when it comes to examining life, we have one data point for how life can exist. and that's in a rocky planet with liquid water on its surface. So for all other exoplanets, the zeroth order metric for whether or not life could exist is A, is there a rocky planet? And B, does it have liquid water on its surface? Now these things are ridiculously hard to actually measure in practice, but <laughs> it appeared that Trappist D might might exist in the region where these conditions could actually exist. So follow follow up observations by the Trappist telescope actually uh, once they you know had a lot more time on the star and were able to you know receive a lot more light, they not only discovered a TRAPPIST-D, but they discovered a TRAPPIST-E, F, G, and potentially an H. Oh, wow. Which would make it a seven-planet system. a sol- An exosolar system, if you will, which is a pretty ridiculous discovery, yeah. given that in space terms, it's in our backyard.
0: Yeah, definitely.
2: And what's even more intriguing uh, is that D, E, and F, all appear to be roughly in the habitable zone of this star. Do
0: you want to define habitable zone?
2: Yeah. So, right. So Dave
1: said how difficult it would be to assess whether a planet actually sure. has liquid water on its surface, like oceans. Yeah. And Earth oceans are play a humongous role in there being life on the planet. Um, in fact, a lot of our theories for the origin of life have to do with life mm-hmm. originating in the yeah. oceans. Yeah, So. We it, it it based on our lack of other information about life, it makes sense to focus our searches on where there could be water. We're
2: seventy percent water ourselves.
1: Yeah, exactly. Right, We're just yeah. little water sacks. um <laughs>
2: Came out wrong. <laughs> Water's in beer, so if we want exo beer,
1: we have to look to these planets. Okay,
0: if we want exo beer,
1: if we want it,
0: <laughs> of course we want it. I want alien beer. Are you kidding me?
1: Exactly. So, so right, we don't know whether there's water on the surface of these planets. So when mm-hmm. we define the habitable zone, we define it sort of by assuming things about the atmospheres that they might have. Okay. So like the gases that make up the air that that aliens could breathe on these worlds, like what gases are there? Other is it oxygen and nitrogen and like carbon dioxide, like on our our world? So these are kind of how it's defined and like how when you add a little bit more of these gases or whatnot or move the 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 planet a little closer to the star, or further away, how basically there are runaway limits. Like for instance, when you get too close to the star. Um, you reach a runaway greenhouse phase where basically the planet is so hot and additional CO2 in the atmosphere like heats the planet basically to the point where you boil the oceans and when your water is in gas phase, it's no longer liquid, you no longer have oceans and that's bad, but worse enough, water in the upper atmosphere, which is something Earth doesn't have, but if Earth's water evaporated from the surface via boiling... And then was in the upper atmosphere that makes it susceptible to ultraviolet rays, which can break apart the water molecule and turn it no longer into water, but into hydrogen, which can escape to space because it's so light uh-huh. and oxygen, which can stay right. behind. So there's a sort of like this turning point where you not only lose the liquid phase of water on the surface, but you lose the molecules um, via this dis- this breaking apart of them from the sunlight, um, and then you lose the hydrogen, so you can never get that water back. That's something that Venus went through. So we define okay. that sort of inner edge of the habitable zone a little bit based on Venus. We don't know too much about Venus's past, sure. but it's very clear that Venus is is has so much carbon dioxide in its atmosphere that it creates this ultra greenhouse effect where where the the carbon dioxide is blanketing the surface um, so that, Basically, the re-radiation of heat to space is inefficient and it can't cool. It just can't cool. It's like having way too much blankets at night. And it's like you can't get rid of the blankets. (laughs) Like you're done. You're overheated. (laughs) And you die. You can't sleep. No. (laughs) And you die. Uh, And so the outer edge of the habitable zone kind of has a a definition a little bit like that. Where you can't heat it any longer and you just cool and cool and cool. So the habitable zone is kind of defined as like the boundaries between these runaway processes where you're like stable And able to have water on your surface if your atmosphere meets these criteria. But in practice, we don't know what these atmospheres are made of. Those aren't observations that as astronomers we've been able to make yet. And so that's sort of a distinction we have to make because the next thing we really want to do after we've discovered these planets, we know what stars they orbit, uh, how far away from the stars they are. Uh, Maybe the rough temperatures that they might be And their sizes We want to know what their atmospheres are like So we can start to test these hypotheses Um,
0: How, How much does it take to Actually know what the atmosphere is like?
1: It takes a lot of Incredible future observations. So okay, sure. Billions of dollars. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. So the Hubble Space Telescope is one of the few um, telescopes that can make observations that attempt to detect molecules in exoplanet Whoa. atmospheres. <laughs> Jesus And yet the Hubble Space Telescope was launched and designed before any exoplanets had ever been discovered. Yeah. So it's being used... Before we were born. Before yeah. we were born. It's being used in ways that were not designed and they're clever and amazing but imagine what we can do when we design telescopes to actually detect molecules in exoplanet atmospheres these are some of the things that i work on um, with my advisor vicky meadows here at uw and we have some ability to inform the design of these these future telescopes Um, one of the telescopes that has already been designed and is ready to launch next year is the james webb space telescope and that telescope is going to be able to give us a first glimpse into the atmospheres of these planets that orbit the Trappist-1 star. So we'll be able to actually assess their composition and start to deduce or, or start to infer their their potential surface temperatures and actually maybe say something about whether they could have liquid surface water and the conditions for life.
0: That's fucking crazy, dude. Um, so <laughs> just in yeah. general, all of this, um, so how many of the planets are within the habitable zone?
2: Three. Three. Yeah, three probably. So one tricky thing about this star is its rotation rate, which one of our colleagues, Ethan Cruzy, measured, you know, around 11 o'clock today.
0: Did which, he really? Yeah,
2: which is pretty nuts. Um, It's <laughs> rotation rate... And, um, you know, some other factors actually suggest that it's super young. And what's really nuts about this star is it is at the literal boundary between not a star and star. Star. And that boundary is defined by whether it can fuse hydrogen or not in its core. And it is the, like, its mass is 0.08 solar masses. And that is the definition for uh, the boundary between not a star and star. (laughs) And given that it's so, you know low mass and if it is young we won't be able to tell whether or not it is actually a star for roughly 1 billion years
0: so okay so there's a
2: lot of unknowns about the star itself which is hard to constrain
0: okay sure and as someone who has taken a single astronomy 101 class to fulfill my science requirement in college um, I'm going to come at you guys with some questions that may seem trivial (laughs) <laughs> but um in okay so i'm trying to understand like the age of a star what does that mean for the planets around it does it mean that the star is going to expand does it like and how does that relate to like our sun
2: so that's a good question so if the star is as young as some people think it is it's actually still contracting so oh, okay there's um four main phases of a star's life. There's one where it's on the Hayashi track, which is a fancy term for saying it's a big gas cloud that's still like collapsing in on itself. Sure. And uh when that happens, it's like you have some big gas cloud in space, something perturbs it, like some shock wave or something, and that gas cloud starts to contract in on itself. The second phase is called the pre-main sequence where that gas cloud gets dense enough such that it starts getting really hot and radiating. So as it contracts, it's actually radiating light because it's not able to fuse anything in its core to Mm -hmm. provide the energy to prevent collapse. So as it contracts, it releases a shit ton of energy, and that all escapes as light. And that's where we think TRAPPIST-1 is right now. We think it's still contracting and getting smaller, and as it's getting smaller, it releases this light. And what's really interesting about this is... Um, bigger things emit more light in astronomy. So as it contracts, it's actually going to release less light. And as it release releases less light, it's habitable zone is actually going to get smaller and smaller. So the outermost planet F that's currently in the habitable zone will actually Mm -hmm. leave the habitable zone. So it'll uh, die, I guess, essentially, if, you know, hypothetically speaking, it was, you know, had things that were living on it. And, uh, so the other, uh, phases of stellar life are the main sequence which is uh essentially just you're fusing hydrogen at your core and you're just living forever so when you're so um the sun for example has been on the main sequence for like five billion years and will be on the main sequence for another five billion years a star this low mass however will be on the main sequence for trillions of years And then uh, after the main sequence, the fourth stage is just when stars die and they get really big and then they okay, sure. just kind of throw up all their gas. So,
1: so wait, side note, like
2: the implication of a
1: star living for trillions of years means a star like TRAPPIST-1 in the age of the universe has never died. There's never mm. been a death of a star the lo- that low mass. They just, everyone that's ever been formed in the universe still exists and is either on the main sequence, burning, fueling, uh, burning hydrogen, or it's not on the main sequence yet. None have died.
2: Yeah. And that's, that's really insane. crazy because if we're look if we're ever looking for a new home, yeah. know, potentially it's like, hey, you know, we you know the the sun is going to explode in you know 5 billion years. Well, not explode, but the sun is going to die in 5 billion years, so, you know, maybe we need some place much more stable.
0: So, th- does this just add more uh, <laughs> like hardships to understanding what's going on with these planets in terms of life being able to form because the star is so young.
1: Uh yeah, absolutely. So it makes you wonder how quickly can life take yeah. f- root in a in a on a planet. So sure. like how and, and so the only data point we have is Earth and yeah. so it really makes you wonder how quickly life arose on Earth. What's really interesting is that field of uh astrobiology is is turning up new results sort of yearly. So the estimates uh origin or you know as of a few years ago we're about 3.7 billion years ago life started so within like cellular life uh yes well a- single-celled yeah. life okay. originated about 3.7 a paper was published just a few weeks ago that found evidence of maybe life starting just uh, actually 4.2 billion years ago. So
2: for, for reference, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sorry. I, I, yeah.
1: yeah, no, in unison, for reference, Earth formed 4.5 billion years ago. So this suggests that life, if if the re- new results can be taken at face value, um, and we, we have reason to believe that, or we as scientists should be skeptical of them. However, they do, they were published and peer reviewed and could be very well true that if life was around, 4.2 billion years ago, that means that just 300 million years after Earth formed out of rocks and gas and dust around the star into a solid body, it for- had life on
2: it. It
0: had, So yeah. how old is Trappist?
2: So there is significant uncertainties associated okay. with Trappist age. Like currently it could be 500 million years old <laughs> or oh. 10 billion years old.
0: Oh shit, okay.
2: But Given its rotation rate, it's either consistent with the super young star or a super old star. Interesting. Insane amount of uncertainties. But (laughs) if it's a young star, which I'm biased towards thinking that, that would imply that E and potentially F could host, could potentially be, have existed in the habitable zones long enough to host cellular life if it has a rocky surface and liquid water. Given uh, the results Jake just recently spoke about, but those are you know highly uncertain statements. Yeah, there are so many things that require characterization to actually verify those claims. But it's a you know there are so many uncertainties just about the star itself that making inferences about the planets are incredibly difficult.
1: Yeah, and making uh, inferences or theories about the origin of life and about habitability all stem from our understanding of Earth. Totally, and so we we really are in a position only to test those as hypotheses rather than state them as, as knowns or laws. I mean, that's what's so exciting
0: for sure. And I have a couple things to go off all this information. One, how does our solar system relate to the solar system around Trappist 1 in the sense of the habitable zone? Because, as far as I know, Earth is the only place that has given life. So, and you're saying that there's a potential of three planets that could give life similar to Earth. Like, are these planets similar to our planets in the solar system?
2: So. Oh, Dave. Yeah, please. Um, So I'm going to go with not at all. Okay. Because (laughs) this entire planetary system could fit within the orbit of Mercury. It is such a small and densely packed system. And what's crazy about this is that since those planets are so close to their star, they actually receive an incredible amount of particle flux from the star, like the star is just vomiting particles on them (laughs) 24-7. And that could have disturbing uh, implications for any atmospheres they may or may not have. Because when a lot of uh, particles, like let's say protons, charged particles from the star, are hitting their atmospheres, it could potentially strip the atmospheres, choking out the potential for life. And leaving just a
1: rocky just desiccated core right. sitting there in space. Yeah.
2: Now, things like magnetic fields could potentially mitigate that or they could amplify that effect. The jury's still out. There's a lot of work <laughs> to be done there, but it is yeah. a very weird environment. Another it's, thing is the planets are in resonance, which means, um, so if you consider the innermost two planets, um, planet C orbits Trappist, like let's say three times every time planet B orbits trap is two times. Okay. Now those aren't the exact numbers, but it's something to that effect where there's an integer ratio between the orbital periods yeah. of the two planets. And when that happens, it's a weird dynamical effect where the orbits of the planets can actually change just given the uh the forces involved. And every single planet is in resonance with every single other planet in the system. Oh, whoa. Which is just fucking nuts to put it mildly. And I... there's no precedence for that to be honest. Oh, right. That's kind of crazy and
1: so when you stuff seven planets within the orbit well within the orbit of mercury so so <laughs> for just like stated as it is today um our colleagues measured the orbital period of h and which was unknown before and that was really exciting and
2: it's still secret we're it's sorry a secret. they publish it tomorrow
1: yeah <laughs> and and by so by the time this podcast yeah <laughs> so but that's really exciting and yeah. they Basically, planet H, all seven planets have years. So, orbital periods is the length of your year. Mm-hmm. Their years are all less than 20 days. So, even oh, the seventh shit. planet has an orbital period less than 20 days, which. Is Allegedly. Just, <laughs> yeah, there's not a lot of uh, constraining <laughs> power there, um, unless you're Eric Eagle. Yeah. Yeah. But um, basically, when you have these dynamical effects of the planets sort of having these um, relationships between their orbital periods. And you have this really, really cold star that much, like, so it's 8% of the mass of the sun and and th- a, like a thousandth of the brightness of the sun. These planets are all packed in and um, it's just unprecedented, uh, nothing like the solar system, except for the fact that all the planets are relatively Earth-sized and like relatively Earth-radius, which is also Earth insane. Mass,
2: Effectively, seven Earths, seven Earths, tentatively and of Three course. of
1: them sit in a range where they have the amount of light received from yeah. the plant, the star, to potentially have liquid water on their surface. Just very exciting.
0: So, and I think this is something, Jake. You were trying to explain to me. <laughs> when you first when the study first came out and i was like don't talk to me because i want to wait till we're on the mics and you're like can i just tell you something <laughs> um is i think it's kind of what you were talking about um and i think the way i remember relating to it is like oh so like in star wars when you're on a certain planet and you can see the other plant another planet like in the atmosphere rotating is that kind of what you're talking about in terms of proximity
1: this is No Man's Sky shit. So, <laughs> so these planets loom large in each other's skies, yes, larger yes. than the moon looks in our sky. Yeah. About a factor of two larger. Yeah. Than so that. wow. Twice the size of the moon. Holy shit. Yeah, and, and and like, but you can see that you know the one that's closer to the star and the one that's that's further from the star. And and to make matters worse, better, um, <laughs> we see them passing in front of the stars. We see their transits. They see that too. So like they're all orbiting in this plane, and so. They They get a
2: fuck ton of mini eclipses. Yeah, exactly. They're getting mini eclipses
1: all the time. Um, And that's awesome. Yeah.
2: (laughs) And what's even bonkers is that uh, in a system like this, when you're really close to the star, tidal forces are a big effect. Oh, for sure. And tidal forces tend to make the orbit very circular. And um, they also tend to lock the planet's rotation period to its orbital period. And in this case, what tends to happen is one side of the planet is always facing the star. And for most of the planets in this system, that looks to be, you know, what their life is like. So there's one planet in perpetual sunlight and one planet, or one half of the planet in perpetual sunlight and one half in perpetual night with a ring of twilight circling the planet. But this isn't completely the case because their orbits are likely not completely circular, Just because with a very dense planetary system, there's planet-planet interactions that keep their orbits slightly non-circular. And in this case, that causes uh, what we call libration, which is effectively the planet wiggling. (laughs) So in this case, each planet, like one face of the planet wants to look at the uh, the star the entire time. But the planet's wiggling around that orientation. So you can imagine if that planet happened to host an ocean, that ocean's constantly sloshing around. So are there going to be like massive, like, you know, huge tidal waves constantly hitting continents on that planet? You know, who knows? Like there's likely some crazy physics that we've never encountered before actually occurring. And if you're curious about an effect like this, the moon is tidally locked to the Earth, exhibiting similar behavior, and the moon is also undergoing this libration so go on youtube and just search lunar libration and you'll see a sick movie from nasa goddard just showing how this actually is on the sky well damn super cool
0: (laughs) all of this is super freaking interesting um i'm glad i got to actually talk to scientists you know who are within the field (laughs) and know what's up about this because this is exciting and something that's making me think whenever I think kind of philosophically sci-fi about, uh, you know, extraterrestrials. I always kind of assume that extraterrestrials already exist and that they're looking on us being like, what the fuck are you guys doing? Or, you know, obviously the whole space time travel issue where they're looking at us when we're still dinosaurs. Um, but it's interesting to think that potentially we could be the extraterrestrials that are looking upon a newer life form. And, you know, maybe we are the scary outsiders who've already created society and life on a planet.
2: I like to think so.
0: Have we all finished our, our Trappist?
2: It was delicious. Yeah. Hard not to drink it.
1: (laughs) It was great
0: yeah okay well um thank you guys so much for the insight on uh you know these new exoplanets the trappist star and i'm glad we got to drink a trappist beer along with it
1: tons of fun uh, we're happy to talk about exoplanets it, anytime no i love course, it thanks a lot it,
0: it's <laughs> great to get that kind of hands-on um information so um ch- shall we cheers our empty glasses let's do
2: it is, oh, let's cheers to glass. a good beer
0: cheers to a good beer Oh, what's up, dude? Thanks for listening to that episode and um, for listening to this little bit. While I plug some stuff real quick, if you listen to this podcast on the iTunes podcast app, it'd be really dope if you could rate and uh, review and subscribe. Things like that. It just you know helps out with visibility, and you know it's cool to let other people know that there's uh, a cool podcast about beer that's fun. Um, I hope that's what you're saying. Because if you're saying anything mean, then I'd rather not be sad. So that'd be tight if you just are nice. Uh, You know, you do you. Uh, but if you don't have an iPhone, or if you don't listen on the iTunes podcast app, I now have Cheers to Beers on TuneIn. So if that's an app you use, or you can listen on your desktop, your laptop, whatever, you can listen on TuneIn. Just search Cheers to Beers. And also, all the episodes are now up on SoundCloud, another easy way to listen to podcasts if you don't use an app, or you don't have an iPhone, or whatever. So iTunes, TuneIn, SoundCloud, there's options. <laughs> um also, if you enjoy listening to this podcast and you kind of want to read more about beer, you can go to the blog CheersToBeersNW.com, which is where I just focus on Pacific Northwest stuff. But it's, it's hard to do that, you know, especially when you travel, uh, you just want to write about all sorts of beer that you drink. Um, so I do some reviews up there if you want to read that. And if you want to see what I'm drinking throughout the week or just additional beer content, I post the most on Instagram. So you can follow me there at Jess, Jess DVD. And I think that's it. Thanks for listening. I love you. Bye.